kids come into the service, isn't it? It's a blast to me. I just, my roots are in children's ministry. It's where I started in ministry. And gosh, I just, I just absolutely loved that part of my, uh, of my life and that part of ministry. And I love this part too. But I do have to tell you, kids are a lot more fun than adults. And they just absolutely are. Two Sunday nights ago, I was, uh, I was tired from the week, uh, tired from the day. And so I uh, went to bed early, uh, but as is my habit, I was reading in bed on my iPad, and I started getting notifications from every news source that I subscribed to that something crazy had happened at the Oscars. Did you hear about it? It's all people have been able to talk about for the last couple of weeks. And so I immediately went to YouTube to see if there was any video of it, and there was, of course. Chris Rock made a joke about Will Smith's wife, and then Will Smith, to everyone's surprise, walked on stage in front of millions of people and slapped Chris, uh, Chris Rock right in the face. And when I say slapped, it wasn't like a little, you know, polite slap. I mean, he put his weight into it. And then he casually walked back, sat down, proceeded to curse Chris Rock from his seat. Now, watching it the first time, I don't know about you, watching it the first time, I thought, I thought this had to be like a bit that they were doing, something they'd planned beforehand. I mean, Chris Rock was laughing as Will Smith approached, and I don't know if you noticed, but he was even sticking his head out. Uh, and uh, then all of a sudden, smack! And when Will Smith started cursing Rock loudly from his seat, it became clear that this wasn't a bit. I, I, I've never seen anything like it on stage. Believe it or not, I've had all kinds of things happen to me while I'm preaching. I've been booed. I've been heckled. I've had people get up and walk out demonstrably upset by something I said. Even had a lady pass out while I was preaching. I just... I just thought the spirit was really moving, so I kept on preaching while the ambulance <laughs> took her out. I thought it was good advertising for the church, you know. I had a guy who didn't like my preaching. He would sit, you know, right up front near the front of the auditorium and just put his face in his hands uh, during the entire sermon. I've had people approach the stage. I've even spoken in prisons and been locked in prison cells with groups of prisoners as I preached to them. But in well over 3,000 sermons and counting, I've never once had someone come up and slap me in the face while I'm preaching. And let's make sure we're all on the same page. There shall be no slapping of the pastor here. <laughs> Thou shalt not slap the pastor. I think that's somewhere in the Bible. Now, Dustin and Rankin, feel free, slap away, <laughs> but not the pastor. Okay? Just a couple of weeks before the slap that was heard around the world, I happened to be listening, and this is part of what caught my attention with all of this, I happened to be listening to a, a podcast that I subscribed to that was, uh, they were interviewing Chris Rock. And in the interview, he talked about his childhood and how he was bullied and humiliated because of his size. And he talked about the wounds that he carries despite all of his success and acclaim and the years in therapy trying to work through all of that. And so as I watched him get slapped there in front of millions of people by a man much bigger than he, I thought about that interview and I wondered when he returned home that night alone in his big dark mansion wherever he lives, no one was watching him, no one screaming his name, no one seeking autographs where he is just Chris Rock. 
I wondered if he found himself transported in his mind back to that bullied kid all over again. Except this time it happened on the largest stage imaginable. I read an essay this week in Harper's Magazine that was subtitled, Notes on Humiliation. It wasn't about the slap, though I will say that the timing seemed more than coincidental. The author wrote, and, and, and by the way, out of sheer coincidence, here comes a name again that keeps showing up in my sermons, for those of you who might be keeping score. She quoted uh, Anton Chekhov, and she said, Anton Chekhov once observed that the worst thing life can do to human beings is to inflict humiliation. Nothing, nothing, nothing in the world can destroy the soul as much as outright humiliation. Every other infliction can eventually be withstood or overcome, but not humiliation. Humiliation lingers in the mind, the heart, the veins, the arteries forever. It allows people to brood for decades on end, often deforming their inner lives. And if you've ever been humiliated, really humiliated, uh, that rings true, doesn't it? In preparation for Easter, we're in a series called The Seven Sayings of the Cross, in which we are looking at the seven last phrases Jesus uttered in the final hours of His agony on the cross. This morning, we're looking at the third saying of Jesus on the cross that's found in John chapter 19. And so, if you have a Bible with you, find John chapter 19 uh, in the New Testament. Feel free to use one of the Bibles in front of you there in the pew rack if you would like to. And if you want to take that home with you, you're free to do that as well. Chris Rock was slapped as millions around the world watched for telling a joke that a husband found objectionable. Jesus was slapped, beaten, whipped, stripped naked, mocked, splayed open on the cross, and abandoned by God for the entire cosmos to witness. And the reason that it happened was because he loved human beings enough to tell them about the truth, about their need for him. He became a laughingstock, a spectacle, the very essence of humiliation and shame while hanging on the cross. And yet somehow, in the midst of his humiliation and physical agony, Jesus uttered seven of the most profound sayings that the world has ever heard. We've seen two of the seven sayings so far. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. That was the first of the seven sayings. The second was to one of the criminals who hung next to him. Jesus said to him, today... You will be with me in paradise. And this morning we find the third saying that Jesus uttered on the cross, often referred to as the word of affection. But before we look at that, I'd like to just bow our heads together and let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to this passage of Scripture, many of us, in fact, all of us know the sting of humiliation the sting of shame. Lord, as we come to this passage, would you speak to us? Would you speak to those places in our hearts that are wounded and full of shame and humiliation? And would you remind us what you have done for us on the cross? And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. In John chapter 19, I want to start reading at verse 25, John chapter 19, 
Uh, Verse 25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Woman, here is your son, and then to the disciple, here is your mother. That is Jesus' third saying of the cross that we're going to examine this morning. But before we can examine that saying, there are some uh, preliminary issues that we have to attend to. There are three controversies surrounding this passage that have often been used to discredit Jesus and to undermine the reality of the gospel and the accounts of his death and resurrection. And I want to take just a minute And I want to address each of those three controversies. The first controversy has to do with this phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, The disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, I don't have time to get us bogged down into the details to prove it, but suffice it to say that in chapter 21, this phrase is used again to refer to the author of this gospel. So, uh, this disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John referring to himself by saying that he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, one of the controversies associated with this is that LGBTQ advocates have argued from this phrase that John was referring to a homosexual relationship that he was having with Jesus. There are innumerable problems with that view, but let me mention just one, and the one that is the most obvious. The Greek language, which the New Testament was written in, as I have mentioned before, was a much more specific language than the English language. We have one word for love. The Greeks had multiple words for love used to describe different dimensions of relationships. The word used to denote a sexual relationship between two males in the Greco-Roman culture is the word erao, erao. If John had wanted his readers to know that Jesus was in a sexual relationship with him, he would have chosen the word erao. But instead of erao, John uses another word for love, the word agapao, which has no sexual connotations whatsoever and instead is used to describe throughout the New Testament the selfless and unconditional love Jesus had for all people to which we are also called to demonstrate toward all people as well. The only way to read a sexual relationship into this expression is to wrench it completely out of the first century context in which it was written and to wrench it out of the context of the rest of the Bible. But we're still left with the question, why does John refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? Some have suggested that he's bragging that Jesus loved him more than the rest of the disciples. But if you look at this more closely, and the five other times that this expression is used in the Gospel of John, it's clear that he's not bragging. In fact, he's doing the opposite of bragging. John is simply saying that there is nothing else about his identity that matters more than the fact that Jesus loved him. Not his race, not his social class, not his education, not his kid's grade point average, not even his name. The most important thing about him is that he is loved by Jesus. That's all he's saying. 
There's nothing more important about me than that. And you have no idea how much peace that would bring to your life if you could adopt the same attitude as John. I don't have time to talk about that today. We've got a whole nother set of things we need to talk about. But what peace that would bring to your soul if you understood that the most important thing about you is that you are a disciple loved by Jesus. If the subject and object of life loves you, what more could you say that would matter? The second controversy has to do with this phrase, woman, here is your son. More specifically, the controversy has to do with that specific word, woman. Why would Jesus refer to his mother as woman? Maybe that, maybe that shocks you, maybe that struck you as disrespectful and a demeaning way to refer to any woman, let alone his mother. Certainly, if I went home this afternoon and said to my wife, woman, I'm tired, I'm going to take a nap, uh, I might not wake up from thy nap. <laughs> but again, we're reading 21st century Western culture into the text. The term, the term woman to first century Jewish people was a sign of respect, rather like the word ma'am. Today, Jesus was showing his mother great respect with that term. And then finally, the third controversy has to do with the fact that the other gospels don't include this saying if Jesus, of Jesus. If the gospels are true, why don't the other gospels include this saying? And the suggestion that critics make, and maybe you've heard this suggestion before, is that this somehow is proof of contradiction in the gospel accounts, which makes the stories of Jesus' death and resurrection unreliable. And if you've ever talked to someone who wants to discredit the gospel, at some point they'll often pull this out and they present it with the attitude of having just exploded 21 centuries of belief in Christ. But the fact that all four of the gospel writers don't include this in their accounts isn't a contradiction at all. Each of the gospel writers call out the things that happened at the cross that were especially meaningful to them and the people to whom they were writing. It makes sense that because this happened to John personally, he would include this in his account and the others wouldn't. Each writer had different audiences and different nuances of Jesus' story that they wanted to tell, and so they included some things and omitted others. But that's not a contradiction, you see. It would only be a contradiction if one of the gospel writers specifically said, Jesus did not talk to his mom and John from the cross. That would be a contradiction, but that doesn't happen. None of them say that. So the fact that this is present in John but not present in the other gospels isn't a contradiction at all. Now, we've dealt with those three controversies. One more thing before we get to this third saying of Jesus. I want to say something about Jesus' mother, Mary. And even though we don't venerate Mary in the Protestant church the way that the Catholic church does, it would be a mistake to gloss over the ferocity of her love for Jesus that is demonstrated in this passage. I want you to think about this for just a moment. In the early days of Jesus' life when he was a newborn, the Gospel of Luke records that Mary and her husband Joseph took Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem. And there was an old man there named Simeon who prophesied over Jesus. 
And he said this to Mary. He said, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. So the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too, Mary. And this is the moment, this moment at which Mary stands at the cross is what Simeon was referring to. This is the sword piercing her soul. You know, in, in a sense, Jesus' entire life had been costly to Mary. His birth had cost her her reputation. It had cost her her safety in the early years as the family had to run for their lives to avoid the attempts to kill Jesus. Every day as she watched him grow and develop, as she witnessed his ministry and his miracles and the growing opposition to him, Simeon's words must have echoed in her mind for 30 years, 30 years. And now here she is at the foot of her son's cross. And I think it's notable that John says that Mary stood. Did you notice this? It says Mary stood near the cross. He's conveying more than just her physical posture. He's conveying the ferocity of her love for her son. His disciples may have deserted him. His nation despised him. The crowds are mocking him. The thieves are taunting him. The priests are jeering at him. The soldiers are indifferent to him. Yet despite her own agony, Mary stands at the foot of his cross, she will not abandon him. She will not cover her eyes at the brutal evil done to her son. She will not cower. And there is still at this point, at this point in our lives, a significant cost of being associated with Jesus. In some parts of the world, being associated with Jesus is worthy of imprisonment or even martyrdom. Here in America, even here in Evansville, there's a cost to being associated with Jesus. Some people will shun you, some will categorize you, some will dismiss you, others will hate you. And as Dustin said a few moments ago after our second service today, a number of people are being baptized. In the first century, to be baptized as a follower of Jesus was taking your life into your own hands. Those people who are being baptized today are themselves saying, Come what may, like Mary, I will follow Jesus. Regardless of the cost to me, I will not abandon him. I will not look away from the cross. I will not cower. Because I am the disciple who is loved by Jesus. And I will stand for him through all my days. We don't venerate Mary in our church, but we should be inspired by the ferocity of her love for Jesus and her willingness, despite the cost, to stand next to the cross as her own son was brutally murdered. Only the love of a mother, right? Only the love of a mother. Well, let's get to this third saying of Jesus. Woman, here is your son. And then to the disciple, here is your mother. There are two things happening here. First, Jesus is fulfilling the cultural expectation 
for the oldest son to provide for his mother. Uh, He's fulfilling a cultural expectation. You have to remember that this happens back in a time in which there were no nursing homes, no social security, no pensions. When you have a widowed elderly mother as Mary is, the only way she won't die is one of her grown children has to take her in. See, this is, this is back before there was Medicaid, again, before Social Security, before they built Florida, uh, because, they, because they hadn't built Florida yet. Older mothers had to live with their grown children. Mary was living with Jesus, but he's about to die. And so as her oldest son, he was expected culturally to make provision for her. And in the midst of his agony, in the midst of his suffering, Jesus is honoring his cultural commitment to provide for his mother. There's something more happening here. Culturally, when the oldest son died, who should be taking care of the mother? Well, the next oldest brother. Jesus has brothers. John chapter 7 says he has a bunch of brothers, but his brothers don't believe in him at this point. And so in addition to honoring his mother and providing for her according to the custom of the day, he's also making the point, he's also making the point that at the cross, all other relationships change. Do you understand that? If you're a believer in Christ, the other people in this room are your mother, your brother, your father, your son, your daughter, and your sister. In other words, Jesus says that the cross so completely changes you that the relationship you have to others who also believe in the cross is now the strongest relationships you have. I'll put it this way. Jesus is saying that the cross means you are part of a new family a family that transcends even your family of origin. Now, if you think about it, this is both shocking and comforting. It's shocking in that Western culture is so individualistic that we like to define ourselves as individuals. Everything about our culture, if you think about it, tears us away from other people. We're atomized. We, we don't have to listen to people, uh, to music, other people, life. Just like, just subscribe to Spotify. You can customate, curate your own playlist. We don't have to go through the inconvenience of answering the family phone anymore. Most of us don't even have a home phone. We each have our own individual phones. And so when the phone rings, for better or for worse, it's for me. We don't have to go out and shop anymore. Just have Amazon deliver it. We don't even even have to go to the movies anymore. Just stay home and watch anything you want. And so, when we come to the cross as individualists in a hyper-individualistic culture, we tend to ask, what does the cross do for me? And there's a great deal that the cross does for you. But shockingly, one of the things that it says is that you no longer belong to yourself. You are part of a family identified by one name, the name of Jesus. I have responsibilities to you. You have responsibilities to me. I am not my own anymore. And in fact, that too is what the people who are being baptized today after the second service are signifying, that they're part of a new family now. And it doesn't replace their family of origin, but it is one that transcends it. This is shocking stuff for Western individualistic people. But I'd like to say that it's also comforting. Because in our individualism, we are a tragically lonely 
culture. Our loneliness in this culture is well documented, so I'm not going to bore you with, with statistics, but our propensity for addiction, our depression, anxiety, our pathological behaviors, our addiction to social media and technology, it's all a sign of our tragic loneliness. And when Jesus says to Mary, this is your son, and to John, this is your mother, he's putting two broken people together, both sinners, into a new family. And in doing so, he's saying to individualists that your individualism is a problem. Staying on the margin of church, not investing in the lives of others in the church or being invested in is a distortion of the life that Christ has called you to. You need other believers in your life to grow. You weren't redeemed to live in isolation. Unfortunately, churches are often the cause of loneliness more than the cure, aren't they? Churches can often be very lonely places. Why is that? The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, he said, it may be that Christians notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, listen to this, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone, everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. You get what he's saying, right? Sometimes the place that should be the safest to acknowledge, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. The place that should be the safest to acknowledge that is sometimes the least safe. And it creates an enormous amount of loneliness. I started this talk with a story of humiliation and the wounds that it leaves on a person's soul. Do you know what humiliation is? Do you know what it is? Here it is. Humiliation is the space between who we are and who we would like to be. It's the space between who we are and who we would like to be. And every single one of us experiences it. We all live with shame. And ultimately, it's our shame that keeps us lonely. We have to hide the truth about ourselves from ourselves and from other people. When Jesus said to Mary, this is your son, and to John, this is your mother, he was signifying that his death on the cross and the humiliation that he endured was joining together broken human beings in the tightest of bonds imaginable on earth, the family, the family of Christ. 
The church is to be a place where broken people can commune with one another, confess with one another, find acceptance, and find healing together because there is no healing, there is no healing from our brokenness alone. I read a story this past week, I'll close with this, told by a Presbyterian pastor about his early days in ministry at a small country church. He said that one day a young woman came to the church to present her child for baptism. She had given birth to the child out of wedlock in a small rural community. In those days, a woman who has done that can easily find herself shunned. The day of the baptism, the woman stood alone before the congregation holding her child in her arms. And the pastor hadn't really thought about it. He was young. He hadn't really recognized the awkwardness of the situation until he asked the question that is customary in Presbyterian baptismal services. He asked, who stands with this child to assure the commitments and promises herewith made will be carried out? Who will be there for this child in times of need and assure that this child is brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? And at that moment, he realized that there was no godmother or godfather on hand to answer the question. But he said that as though on cue, that entire congregation stood and with one voice said, we will, we will, we will stand with this child. And that's what the church is called to be, a nurturing family full of broken people, unafraid to show their brokenness and finding healing together. Woman, this is your son. And to the disciples, Jesus said, here is your mother. Jesus' third saying from the cross. Would you bow your heads with me? We confess to you this morning, Lord Jesus Christ, the cavalier nature with which, we te- with which we treat your church and with which we treat the other people in the church. The relationships that we have with them, we confess to you how much we hide, not only from ourselves, but from other people. And, Lord, I pray that City Church would be the kind of place that broken people can find acceptance and love and forgiveness and nurturing and support despite anything that they may have done or anything that's been done to them. Transform us into that kind of church. It's what you redeemed us for. And we pray that the city of Evansville would see a church like that and want, want to be part of what we have in you. We identify ourselves this morning as disciples whom Jesus loved. Nothing more important about me or anybody else here, Lord, than that. 
It's in your name. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.